Today on the podcast, a mantelpiece moment that gets me excited for a book adaptation, a novel that takes us to the lighthouse, and of course, the weekly reveal to what magical book I have pulled down from my to-be-read shelf. All of that and more this week on A Novel Review. Hello and welcome to the literature podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hey guys, welcome to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, I am your host, this is a podcast about literature, and today we are going to be discussing Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. But before I get to this book, before I sail across to this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past, and this past week I have seen the first sort of shots of the upcoming TV show A Gentleman in Moscow, which is based upon the book by the same name by the author Amor Towles. And I am really, really excited for this one, actually. I absolutely adored the book. It's this really, really nice, comforting, hopeful, yeah, really comforting book about a man sort of um, that gets, he gets, what's the word, I guess, imprisoned within a hotel in Russia, in the Metropole Hotel in Russia. And he, I think it's about the age of 30, he gets told he has to live there for the rest of his his life. Um, And it's this really kind of rich story about how he, manages to basically not go insane, I guess. That sort of makes it sound like a bit more of a philosophical, psychological story, but it's this really sort of homey, comforting story about how he goes about his day by day and the relationships he forms while being within the within the hotel. And I really, really love the book, and, and many people love the book, which is why they're now making a TV show. And yeah, I'm really excited for the TV show. I'd say a little bit nervous as well because it's an adaptation and there's kind of a duality to adaptations in that you want them to bring something fresh, but you also want them to remain incredibly faithful to the source material. And I'm not too sure where I fall. I just really hope that they nail, I guess, the comfort that the story evokes when you read it. So yeah, really excited for that one. Really looking forward to that. Um, it comes out this year, 2024, so if that's something that interests you, read the book if you haven't done that, but um, watch the TV show as well because I'm sure that'll be, well, hopefully it'll be really, really great, so yeah. Housekeeping, as always, all the scripts from the episode are available on the website. Uh, there should be closed captions here, and yeah, please like, subscribe, five-star review. I, I really appreciate it, and it helps other people find the pod, which is you know so so nice and I guess comforting for me as well to know that people are out there actually listening, so yeah. I really enjoy it, and uh, let's keep let's keep the good times going. Thanks. Okay, let's get into this book as much as we can. To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. I genuinely did not think that Mrs. Dalloway was ever going to be in trouble of being dethroned as my favourite Virginia Woolf novel, but I mean, here we are. This book was absolutely fantastic. Tell the Lighthouse was published in 1927, and Wolfe herself thought that this was her best novel. Her husband Leonard also shared this thought, saying that it was her masterpiece and a psychological poem. And when I was writing up the notes and script for this episode, I was trying to find the right words for what this book was, what it you know what it actually was, because in true modernist fashion, 
there isn't much of a story in terms of narrativization and plot. It's more a novel about philosophical introspection and the exploration of the self. There's perception and its issues, uh, subjectivity, art and the perception of art, childhood expectation and emotion, adult relationships. And so I kept thinking, how was I going to describe this book without listing everything I just have? How could I sum up a book with all of this, a book with barely any direct action, barely any dialogue, and yet so much depth and rich insights into the nature of human relationship and familial relationships. A psychological poem, absolutely brilliant and absolutely spot on as well. A psychological poem. That is, it's, it's, it's a perfect description for what this book is. So let's get into it. Let's have an overview, which will be as difficult as, as I have just said, because there's not a lot actually going on in terms of plot development, but still I will give it a red hot go. This novel is told in three parts, the window, time passes, and to the lighthouse. The novel for the most part takes place at the Ramsey summer house. There is Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, their eight children, and then a host of guests who are staying with them. The first section of the story revolves around the Ramsey's family's summer in the Isle of Skye, marked by interpersonal tensions such as the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey. The second part of the novel spans a decade, delves into the characters' evolving lives, while the third section of this novel reunites them all for a long-awaited trip to the lighthouse back at the summer house. Though a lot has changed, a few characters have actually died, and the tone for me was very, very different and much more solemn. But for me, what this novel was mostly concerned about was the nature of longevity and man's legacy, art's position in this legacy, and the nature of relationships, especially between men and women. That is probably all I can really say in terms of an overview. A philosophical adventure more than a physical one. A psychological poem stripped back to the moments and scenes that offer glimpses to this depth that Virginia is probing at. I think we need a quote because why not? This is a quote when Mr. Ramsey is thinking about the influence he has produced as a philosopher and the permanence of those ideas against the world and time, and this idea that you can measure yourself against an alphabet, the letter A being the basics of humanity in thought and action, and the letter Z being the generational man, like Shakespeare. Basically, he is having this philosophical dilemma that I felt concerns a lot of the novel, and that is, what is the meaning of it all? All this, this life that we have, all this nonsense. So anyway, here's the quote. It was a splendid mind, for if thought is like the keyboard of a piano, divided into so many notes, or like the alphabet is ranged in 26 letters, all in order, then his splendid mind had no sort of difficulty in running over those letters one by one, firmly and accurately, until it had reached, say, the letter Q. He had reached Q. Very few people in the whole of England ever reach Q. Here, stopping for one moment by the stone urn which held the geraniums, he saw, but now far, far away, like children picking up shells, divinely innocent and occupied with little trifles at their feet, and somehow entirely defenceless against the doom which he perceived, his wife and son together in the window. They needed his protection, he gave it them. But after Q, what comes next? After Q, there are a number of letters, the last of which is scarcely visible to mortal eyes, but glimmers red in the distance. Z is only reached once by one man in a generation. Still, if he could reach R, it would be something. Here at least was Q. 
He dug his heels in at Q. Q he was sure of. Q he could demonstrate. If Q then Q, ah. Here he knocked his pipe out with two or three resonant taps on the handle of the urn and proceeded. Then ah. He braced himself. He clenched himself. How beautiful was that quote? How beautiful is the language, the ideas? You can see and sort of hear in that the main idea threading, but then there's this interruption of the thought of seeing his wife and child and and sort of what they remind him of in that moment before returning to the original idea of his own worth. This is one of the more difficult aspects of modernism, is its sweeping narration style going from the main thought through the paragraph, then to something relating to something unrelated, but it all sort of flows and it's this flow of Virginia's writing that really sets the tone. There's also this other really interesting aspect that happens in this paragraph that kind of throws you as the reader. This line, he knocked his pipe out with two or three resonant taps. It's that uncertainty of what is happening and has happened. Was it two or was it three taps? Normally in literature, normally as a writer, you would be a lot more defined in what is happening, but not here. It instills this idea that the narrator, this narrating voice of the story, might not even be fully aware of what is happening, which can add another confusing yet brilliant layer to the story, and it's these small glimmers of attention that really, ironically, solidify Virginia's writing. There is a difficulty in reading modernist work, especially if you're not that much of an experienced reader, if such a thing exists, or if you don't read much, or even if you're unsure of what modernism's aims are. I found while reading this, I kept thinking I was missing the progression of the narrative, and yet I wasn't at all. Because a lot of it is kind of internalized monologue, not much physically happens, which can discern you as a reader or a listener as I was, because you can get to the end of 5, 10, 15 minutes of reading or listening, to the end of these fabulously embellished monologue trains of thought, and think you have missed something, missed some semblance of story progression, when really you probably haven't. It is particularly hard, and I have this issue all the time when listening, especially to Virginia Woolf, is that her writing style is so sweeping and peaceful that it is actually just like this pleasure to get lost in, in the sort of formation, the collection, the structural cadence of the sound of the world rolling along so beautifully as you listen to her work spoken aloud. And because modernism is a stream of consciousness idea writing style, I find it actually provokes my own stream of consciousness, and so the whole experience is often really peaceful and lovely until, you know, 30 minutes has gone by and I have absolutely no idea what has happened. One of the areas, though, that I think modernism really excels is scenes like dinner party scenes, especially ones like the scene that takes place in this book. It is a dinner party with a lot of characters that are all different and all shielding something. They're sort of hiding something, not in a not in a sinister way, but they're more holding something back but then also judging everyone else while trying to play their own part of sorts in amongst the crowd. And where modernism really excels is this ability and I guess this opportunity to float above the scene and to dip into people's minds and see the internal chaos that rages behind those polite smiles and easy laughs. You get an intensely personal experience from a range of different people. And I think where Wolf really excels as a writer is her attention to the real, to people. She sees people, she observes them, she traces their thoughts and understands them. She understands especially the interplay between man and woman. The dinner party scene is one of a kind of fervent beauty for me because so much happens and yet nothing really happens. But 
Wolf unmasks humanity at that dinner table, which so often is the melting pot for humanity, for families, for experiences, for enjoyment, despair, for all of life, which I think are all the qualities of this novel. Throughout this novel, swirling around the drama of these relationships is this looming question of our own mortality and our own legacy beyond death. This question of, if not even Shakespeare is going to outlast any old rock that you can find on the street, then what is the point of it all? It was a very, very curious question, and I was curious to know if Wolf would try answer it. Well, spoilers ahead, so tune out now if you don't want to know. But no, she didn't answer it, and yet I kind of think that's where the answer is, eluding us. So to try answer it would be a fatal flaw in the human experience. She does offer something, some parting piece of wisdom with the closing monologue of the book, and... This is just a snapshot of it as we are with the character Lily Briscoe who has been working sort of inadvertently on this artwork throughout the duration of the novel. And the quote goes, Quickly, as if she were recalled by something over there, she turned to her canvas. There it was, her picture. Yes, with all its greens and blues, its lines running up and across, its attempt at something. It would be hung in the attics, she thought. It would be destroyed. But what did that matter? She asked herself, taking up her brush again. What does it matter? What does any of this matter? If our lives are simply meaningless, does that mean that we can't still find meaning in them? I think that's a question for the philosophers right now. I've got a podcast episode to crack on with. I listened to this book, which as I have said was beautiful because her prose is so luminous and poetry is made to be spoken and heard. But... But I think next time I want to read this book. Next time I want to delve into it. I want to have the option to read it, to reread passages with ease. Like I said, this might have actually taken the the crown for my favourite Virginia Woolf novel. Sorry, Mrs. Dalloway, falling to a very, very close second. But that begs the question, what would I rate this novel out of five? This is going to be a 4.7 out of five because this was damn near perfect. So what am I reading this week? This week I am reading Eilif Shafak's The Island of Missing Trees. And I gotta say, I was really impressed with this book. Yeah, I bought it probably three days ago and I finished it this morning. I've absolutely smashed through it. Uh, It's about, it's set on the island of Cyprus and it's mostly set place in the 70s. It's about a Greek boy, Kostas, and it's a bit Shakespearean because they're star-crossed lovers. There is Daphne, the young... Turkish girl and they are in love which of course is not it's not not permissible but it's also not that encouraged in that particular time period of civil conflict um and yeah they pretty much hate each other the 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 two cultures that is Daphne and Kostas are very much in love which is the main issue of the story and I mean it's an incredibly well-balanced read in that she presents various issues and always presents them very fairly and doesn't really ever seem to take a side which I quite enjoy There's another aspect that really won me over in this book, and that is one of the points of view chapters in this book is told from the position of a fig tree. So if that's not winning you over and and, and sort of, you know, winning your affections to buy and read this book, then I'm not sure what will, but I will be doing an episode on this very, very shortly. So stay tuned for that. Now, before I close out the show, if you have listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really, really appreciate it. Also, like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, and head along to the website and support the pod if you like. But as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. 
So I think it's time to end this episode. And today to take us away, I think some Sylvia Plath. And she says, I took a deep breath and listened to the old brag of my heart. I am, I am, I am.